We had more growth than anyone's ever seen in the history of the internet. Who's around you that's doing really well? Will they teach you? They can have as much engagement as they want, but they want to throttle it back because they want advertisers to be able to pay for the reach. The most fulfillment you're going to get is the search within. Shadow banning is a real thing, and Instagram won't admit it. It's not a race to good ideas, it's a race to revenue. I've seen the weirdest shit make money. We're an 18 month old company growing like wildfire. He felt that we needed to be leaned out, you know, like a classic private equity kind of move. Increase the revenue, reduce the expenses, right? 18 month old company, it doesn't make sense. The reason why people listen to you is because you've done epic shit. You've been involved in epic stuff, you've exited epic stuff, you've got a story to tell, and it's facts. We're on a $100 million buying spree acquiring media companies. We were doing it without any cash. I learned a very specific art. There are very few people on this planet that could take a company public and have done it. At the end of the day, nobody cares who pioneered it, who created it. You know, it's just like, you can't patent anything. You're showing somebody a recipe of how to do it a little differently. And welcome back to the Frankie Lee podcast. And today, guys, I have another absolute banger for you. I have Ted Danik, the man who was one of the first to found and start with MySpace. He's scaled that, they scaled that, they exited that, and he's gone on to do other things in tech as well. Absolutely smashed it on all levels. Mate, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Mate, it's an absolute, absolute pleasure. I think I think you, you're someone who was around in the early days of social media. You guys saw what I think Friendster or Friendfinder, Friendster, Friendster were doing with with the platform, and you guys, you were one of the first on board with MySpace, and that's how your kind of journey in tech kind of took it took its front. I mean, how did you first get involved in tech, and what what was it about like that model that you, that you guys saw and made you start MySpace? Sure. So essentially, I've been in tech before uh, MySpace as well. So I was in the tech in the mid 90s in the Silicon Valley and during the dot com boom. So my career started there in sales and business development and had a marketing degree. So some of that was relevant. And then uh, I ended up in a bunch of startups and then I ended up in one in L.A. I'm from Silicon Valley. So I lived up north in San Francisco and then uh, ended up moving to L.A. for a startup company called LowerMyBills.com. And then we ended up selling that to Experian. I was one of the early guys there. So that was a successful venture and, and it was a lot of fun. And we learned a lot of stuff there and then um, jumped on MySpace and from its beginning. What was it? What was the thing about MySpace that you kind of thought, you know what, I have to be involved in this because I think it could be a unicorn. I think it could be something really successful. You know, at the time, I, I just didn't want to work in sales anymore, right, in business development. So after coming off of Lower My Bills, I just felt like I, I needed a sabbatical, you know, really kind of some, some time off from what I was normally doing. So, you know, and MySpace was starting at the time, and, you know, and, and my role there was very different. It was, it was going to be marketing at that moment, you know, so I was good friends with Tom, and Tom said, hey, just come on, let's do Let's do marketing. Initially, it was just, hey, let's throw some a bunch of really cool events and you know acquire some exclusive content from record labels and and studio film studios, etc. And let's leverage that content to get exclusive, you know, some eyeballs basically on the site. And so you know that was very different from what I was used to doing. So it started off that way, and and it was fantastic. You know, it was great. So how did MySpace kind of d differentiate itself from Friendster in the early days so that it could stand out? So it was super easy. So we were avid Friendster users, all of us, Tom and a bunch of us, right? And so we were also, Tom was also on dating sites, you know, at the time. So what we wanted, really wanted to do was kind of make it feel like a less taboo dating site in a way initially and really just kind of open it up and, and figure out what the stuff 
was that was missing. So we had these conversations with some of the biggest people on on Friendster, like Tila Tequila at the time. She was huge on Friendster. And, you know, just figured out all the things that were restricting and limiting them from growing. And some of the things were super easy and basic, like they were limiting um, users from having more than 500 friends, you know, on Friendster. You couldn't have more than a couple pictures also. So all those things were like basic, you know, say, hey, we just open it up. You could have as many friends as you want. And at the same time, you could have as many images as you want as well. And then we started adding features like, hey, do you want to categorize your friends? Like you want your top eight friends to be, you know, displayed on the page, you know, things like that. You want background music, things like that. So we just kept adding features and stuff and um, based on conversations we were having with people that were already, you know, on the site um, on Friendster. How how did you get that first initial boost of growth when you when you guys started in obviously get it out into the wild so to speak so that you started to onboard thousands of users? So you know how people are using influencers these days to promote things. Well, we did the same thing. So we used Tila Tequila and everyone else to promote MySpace when they first when we first got them on MySpace. They started using the other platform to promote it. So you know like they're they're pushing basically MySpace on Friendster. And all of a sudden, people started joining for, uh, joining MySpace really fast. Is so. when, when you got a platform like a MySpace, and you see that now now you're bigger, now you're growing, and then you see other people potentially pushing platforms. How can a platform like a MySpace limit limit that reach for other platforms? So you're not actually so you can get marketing from other platforms, but you're not so much marketing it and taking people away from your platform. Yeah, so I think that generally. I mean, I, I think Twitter's trying to do that right now, you know, limiting the external, you know, uh, links and stuff like that. Um, MySpace didn't care, you know, so much at the time. And uh, and I think Twitter, I, I mean, I don't know what Friendster ended up doing, but, you know, I think that sometimes, you know, some of the stuff you have to let people use, uh, you have to let them promote their whatever they want to promote, you know, and I think that limiting them from doing that makes them feel confined and constricted and you know i think they end up leaving the platform eventually um because of that but i think you know we've seen that happen on instagram as well you know where initially you couldn't have links you know you had to swipe up for stories and only certain people had the ability to do that basically basically shipping traffic off platform you know and um and i think that facebook realized that they needed people to do that you know it was something that they had to do you know so they let them, they slowly kind of opened it up, but they were very protective of the traffic. You know, they didn't want it to go anywhere else. So I suppose as a platform then, as, as someone like yourself who's developing a platform, you have to you have to be willing to let go of some traffic to keep the user base long enough to grow to the level where it can be a unicorn and just like a, a billion users, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that you, you got to make it, you, you know, generally usable, right? So it's got to be, you got to be able to, allow it so it's it's attractive to people because of what right and a lot of things where people are promoting things you know and so these users have a lot of like a huge audience they want to be able to promote their stuff you know they want to promote their they have a clothing line or they have whatever it is they promote you know those those urls don't live on that platform they live external so they want to be able to push that you know and and um i think from that standpoint that adds a lot of value for the user and because of that, the users will continue to post content on the platform. At the end of the day, that platforms just want more content, you know, as much content as they can get. Those content, that all that content drives the advertising and that ad advertising revenue. So was the to was the 
the total monetization policy of of you guys when you initially started myspace to just get to x amount of users before then we can turn on monetization through ads was that the whole premise of the business plan in terms of monetizing it so some background um myspace's parent company was a company called e-universe which was um eventually the name changed to um the name changed uh from e-universe to uh i can't remember the name but anyways so that company was an ad company, right? So it was a it, was, it did all kinds of ad stuff, right? So the parent company wasn't necessarily a good company. It's called Intermix Media. Sorry, that was the name of its um, its parent company, and um, it was an ad company, and they'd gotten in trouble quite a bit from the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, for advertising um, aggressive advertising practice, right? So. They were injecting ads and kind of everything, and there was like all kinds of, you know, just it's, it was basically an advertising company, you know, online. And so from that standpoint, MySpace had monetization built in pretty quickly, and it was reasonable. So because it was an ad company, we, re we really understood the compromise between user experience and monetization, right? Because there's a fine line between the two, right? Either, you know, you have no monetization, you have the best user experience, or you have some monetization and then user experience is kind of compromised just a little bit. In this case, we were we we're pretty well balanced because we we're looking at attrition and we were tracking all of that stuff. We we're saying that, hey, adding an ad unit on this side is causing attrition or adding an ad unit on this side is is um, is affecting our user experience and so people are talking about it or whatever it is. So we ended up balancing it pretty well. And... Um, <clears throat> So then when, when, when we ended up selling MySpace to News Corp, that changed, right? So two things happened. And this is all like kind of unfortunate, but it was, um, you know, Rupert Murdoch had talked about this publicly in, in books and, and, uh, and other places where initially we were supposed to see a big infuse, a big injection of growth capital, right? The growth capital was to hire engineers and it's a couple hundred a month that we needed new engineers. Because we had so much growth, we had a bigger, you know, from a traffic standpoint, we're bigger than bigger than Google at a certain point. We had more growth than anyone's ever seen in the history of the internet or anything else. You know, we were acquiring that many new users every day. And this is all viral. There was no, we weren't spending money on any user acquisition campaigns or any of that stuff. So the growth was pretty insane. The site as a result of that, attracted a lot of bad, bad actors and bad characters. Some of these guys were running their spam houses on MySpace and you know using the messaging um, program platform to to spam and you know send all kinds of like really really you know aggressive marketing emails and, and campaigns through messaging to monetize for themselves. And so that spam was costing us you know, users as well. So users, user attrition. So we needed more engineers to battle that, you know, and you need to hire engineers. You need to spend some money. First, two things happened as soon as uh, Rupert Murdoch came on. He truly believed that the site was under-monetized and the expenses needed to be cut. You know, we're an 18-month-old company growing like wildfire, and he felt that we needed to be leaned out, you know, like a classic private equity kind of move, like, uh, Increase the revenue, reduce the expenses, right? Not for an 18-year-old, 18-month-old company. It doesn't make sense. So that ended up happening. Um, so we had a hiring freeze immediately. We couldn't hire anymore and couldn't sustain, you know, the growth. And 
the spam guys went went to town, went to, went crazy. And at the same time, to compound the effect, so user experience was compromised because of the spam. The second issue was um, he wanted to make more money, so he he forced us to add more ad units everywhere. So adding more ad units compromises user experience, and then spam does too. So at the same time, you know, the sites started falling apart. So while that was happening, Friendster saw this opportunity. Say, hey, let's open up. These guys are falling apart. Let's open up to the whole world. Because remember, Friendster was limited. Sorry, not Friendster. I'm talking about Facebook. Facebook was limited to just um, So college. Facebook had just come on the scene as well then. Facebook had been around since like 2004, right? right but okay. they had been into colleges, you know, and you had to be a student to be able to join So Facebook. they were on your radar as well? No, we knew them. Um, we knew who they were. They weren't on our radar at all. We didn't think that they were going to you know, do anything, you know, special. But after the acquisition, we were paralyzed, you know. And so they decided, okay, they're really popular against within one group, which, which was the audience of, you know, you're a college student, you're on Facebook. So they decided to open it up um, to uh, everyone, you know. And so when they did that, they held off on monetization. So no monetization. They just wanted to grow, 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 grow. These guys figured, you know, they understood it really well. We were paralyzed, couldn't handle the growth, and user experience was being compromised. All these guys, you know, they had um, they had no ads, and they just opened it up to everyone, and everyone started joining. It was crazy. So they just people were just tired of MySpace at that moment um, because of its user uh, experience. You know, I want I want to understand how that feels for you guys at the top. Obviously, the first four or five of you, you've all got equity in the business. You've all now received a little bit of cash but you're on an earnout period of, of, of this as well. So you still want to grow this thing, but you feel handicapped to do it. How, how does that feel from, from someone who's as driven as you? How does that feel for you right now? You know, it's very painful <clears throat> because essentially, you know, when you feel like you've built something that's like, you know, monumental and, you know, you're a part of something really great and then uh, like a really, really great team, and you see someone comes in and destroys it, you know, it, it's very painful, you know, and it's, it was quite depressing. So we all kind of went through some stuff, you know, in 2008 after that. And, um, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's really sad what happened to it, but a lot of other things, you know, came out of that. Um, some of the other team, uh, built other companies that are fantastic, you know, that have done well, continue to be serial entrepreneurs and keep building companies. I built a company that serviced MySpace immediately after MySpace was our first client and uh, we grew the company and we took it public in 2017 and uh, continued to grow. And then I just left last year. But um, yeah, I mean, we learned a lot so much from it. You know, there's like, there's a lot of, of valuable experience that, you know, that we got from it. And um, we know, you know, we know what not to do <laughs> next time. So it, am I right in thinking that there's a there's kind of a window of time with tech entrepreneurs where you can, you know, is, is it between 20 and 40 for argument's sake? There's a window of time for tech entrepreneurs where you can absolutely send it and you've probably only got the opportunity of doing two big runs to market, so to speak, in your in your careers. Is that is that kind of am I right in thinking that or is there more opportunities than that now? I think there's, you know, as you start learning, it depends on your experience. Right. So. I was 27 when we started this. I'm 47 now, so around that time, so about tw it was about 20 years ago, and um, you know we're you know there's constantly new. I see new opportunities, and kind of like how we fast followed Friendster at that time, 
I learned a lot from all of that. And so my, my thesis has always been fast following and figuring out who's doing what and how can I do it a little bit better and faster, you know? And so I like leveraging learnings, you know, seeing what people are doing. I don't like paving roads myself. It's too expensive. So I don't want to pioneer something. And, um, and I think that, you know, based on the experience, we could build something much bigger, you know, now potentially. So it, it is just a matter of, you know, putting the right team together and, and finding a mission, you know, essentially. As you look at the tech landscape now in terms of like, you know, you've got Twitter and you've got Instagram and you, and it just seems at the moment that Instagram seems to be stealing, for want of a better word, the best features of, of a Snapchat, of a, of a TikTok and just trying to integrate them in the platform. When you look at that from an objective standpoint of view, like from the outside, from your experience, do you see that as a, as a kind of a, a problem that they have no original ideas it seems to be from from this point you know i feel like i think that there is some ch challenging um you know like sentiment about them not coming up with something unique but i think that the whole initially instagram was unique you know like it was that the whole concept of it the whole fundamental you know the foundation of of instagram is pretty unique you know now these other things that they're trying to add in there because they're seeing behavioral patterns, right, of users out there. Oh, these guys like, you know, these short clips and, you know, whatever it, whatever is the fad at the moment, can we add that in as a feature? And I feel like that's a really smart thing from a fast-following standpoint. Say, like, look, the reason why these platforms are growing is because users like seeing content in a certain way, arranged a certain way. Users like... Or, or content generators, influencers, like creating content in this type of format. We currently don't support that format, but if we did, maybe we can get them to, you know, produce content for our platform because it's a behavior, right? It's a very specific type of behavior. And so from that standpoint, I feel that they're pretty smart doing that. These are all, and, and the way that they're adding this, I feel like these are all features, really. They're not, they shouldn't just be platforms of their own. Now, they're specialized. Like TikTok is very specialized in one area, right? One specific area. And it's done really well. And Instagram has not been able to, you know, to break that wall, you know? And I think that, I think it's going to take some time for them to gain that kind of momentum that TikTok has. I mean, they're so big, you know, they've already gotten, they have the market share and they've gotten the uh, critical, you know, they've hit that moment where it's, it's very difficult for Instagram to, you know, kind of, replicate the kind of figures that these guys have achieved initially when i saw like threads come out i thought oh good move from zuck but as soon as kind of elon rebranded twitter to x and i could see what he was doing with that and threads just went through i think they're at the lowest active user base that they've ever been at do you do you see kind of taking taking off app into another app as a kind of a problem from from your standpoint like is that something you would you perhaps wouldn't run that playbook so the thing is the threads thing, you know, it's a very strange kind of situation because it's so tied into Instagram, right? And so it feels like it's part of Instagram and then at the same time you're on another app, you know? So it's it's kind of confusing. I think the challenges that people are seeing on threads is that you don't have the kind of engagement that you see on, on X, right? It's very different. So you might have, you know, he, we, he might have gotten, you know, a huge amount of, of users or installs really quickly. It's because they kind of, you know, they leverage the platform to get the audience fast. But I feel like maybe that audience was not 
necessarily the audience that's active on X anyways, right? So is are the users on X the same users on Instagram? I don't think so. Yeah. I think there is some overlap for sure, but I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of difference between that type of user. So you basically you're trying to push, you know, like a Twitter like product to like Instagram user, you know, and um I don't know. The the problem from the outside that I saw was like I saw why would I post on this regularly because I'm seeing people with 400k followers on there getting seven likes and three comments yeah so it's like that's that's kind of demoralizing if you're that creator that's got really high engagement over on this instagram platform they've they're all they all their real users have gone and followed them on these things but they're but their content that they're writing it's good content but it's not getting it's, it doesn't have any yeah any like reach at all so how when you're in a company like myspace or instagram or wherever you are how do you figure out your algorithm to be able to serve people with enough reach to keep them on the platform but not too much, so to speak. You know, the thing about MySpace was so simple. It re really just were chronological, you know, and it was just basic. There was really no algorithm from that standpoint. We were not, we were not using machine learning at the time. There was no AI. There was none of that stuff. It's just chronological, super easy. And the engagement was pretty strong, you know, it was pretty strong. Now, with these guys, like Instagram's algorithm is so complex, right? So insane. And a lot of, you know, a lot of complaint about the algorithm was related to, you know, hey, people aren't seeing, is reach related, right? So their algorithm is also building in a throttling mechanism for, you know, for engagement. So it's like they can have as much engagement as they want, but they want to throttle it back because they want advertisers to be able to pay for the reach, right? So in, in you know, in contrast to the organic reach, right? So they have the, you know, they have the, the, um, the engagement. Now, Threads, I see the same thing. You know, I had like 50,000 or 55,000 um, threads followers overnight, you know, like within like a couple days, you know, and that's kind of slowed down. I haven't seen that change. I have like 2.7 million on Instagram, but for some reason it didn't translate, you know, like it partially did, but not, not as much, you know, as I expected it to. But um, I think that they have to figure something out with regards to the engagement because that's the problem that everyone's having. So all content creators I'm seeing, they don't they just don't have the engagement, you know, on threads. It's just pretty, it seems like no one's there. It's like dead, you know, it's like an empty mall. It, it just feels like that, I don't know whether shadow banning, and maybe you could give some insight into this, sure. whether shadow banning is actually, well, firstly, is shadow banning an actual thing? Because it feels like on threads from day one, you're shadow banned. Yeah. Shadow banning is a real thing and Instagram won't admit it. And I have so many, so many friends of mine who've been shadow banned, you know, and you know, I, I can tell you, so I have friends of mine that have three, 4 million users, um, in their audience, you know, 200 likes on a post or something, you know, like really, really weird, right? Consistently always, it's been like that for ever since something happened, you know, to them. So Instagram won't admit about the shadow ban, but it does exist. So if you're in that position then, and you've got an Instagram account, you verified the traditional way of getting verified where you had to be notable, sure. not just buying it. Yeah, yeah, like ours. And, and, you, and you're, you, you've tanked because you've done something in their eyes wrong at some point, which is, which is kind, of, kind of what I've seen with Instagram through a, through a couple of different people. What do you do then? Do you, do you have to start your socials again, essentially, on that platform? Or is there any way that you can you, you know, re-engineer it so that you can get out of that situation? You know, I think... You know, it's it's hard to say, but I feel like a lot of these people that have this problem are are boosting their posts and they're doing a lot of other, you know, the groups, 
you know, the uh, engagement group stuff, you know, just to just to do it. And they keep buying engagement, you know. So it's kind of like it's it's compounding thing. You know, like I, I have people around me that they have a bunch of followers and, um, you know, we don't know where those followers came from. Not always. Right. There might be some in there that are not not real. Right. And so when unfortunately, the problem with not having real followers is Instagram's algorithm is based on re response. Right. So let's say like, yeah, three million followers and, you know, one and a half million of them are fake or bots the first one and a half million, you know, based on the, the ratio of engagement that they see, they're going to give you priority or they're going to give somebody else priority in, you know, to be able to be shown in the feed because of the, the more engagement means more ad dollars for them, you know? So essentially if, you know, if, if your audience is not re responsive to a certain ratio, we don't know what that ratio is, they start deprioritizing you. Right. So they don't show your content to your, your entire audience. So these guys are buying, you know, bots and all this other stuff. They're a lot of them are all complaining about engagement because it's like until you get rid of those followers, you're always going to be you're never going to be better than half. You know what I mean? Half of your followers will never see your content because half of them are fake. Right. They're just bots. The other half will see it. But then that's 50 percent, you know, already. So it's it's not it's not real. If you have the opportunity to remove followers and you removed these bots or remove these spam accounts would that then give you the opportunity to to get better reach then or and fix it that way you know it's possible but how would you do that you know think about it. like some of mm. these guys have millions of fake followers like how would they remove them how do you identify them you know and, and you kind of set yourself up to fail because you've some people in that sphere put their whole whole worth their internal worth predicated sure. on their following mm -hmm. so it's kind of like they don't feel like they could step backwards but they've got no engagement that's why there's a lot of influencers that have two three million followers that are not making any money yeah because yeah. they can't they can't sell anything because they can't reach anybody that's true yeah the reach is a big problem for a lot of these people but at the same time um content is is um is key as well you know there's a lot of people like ig girls right like a lot of ig girls out there with like three, five million followers and, you know, the money they make. I mean, let's just to say they're not on OnlyFans, right? Like not OnlyFans girls, but they don't make brand dollars because their audience is primarily men, you know, or something like that, you know. So the content will determine also. And so we, we know a bunch of people with like 50,000, 100,000, 75,000 followers that are making a killing because their content is, is so, you know, so perfect for a brand. And that drives the engagement as well. So like women with a with a female audience, you know, like 50, 7,500,000 um, audience influencers, micro, we call them micro influencers, you know, they could be earning twenty to $50,000 a month potentially, you know, depending on, yeah. you know, how great their content is, so. And what, what, what kind of things have you seen within the social content sphere that people should be applying now, but you don't see it applied enough? Like what kind of frameworks are really getting getting people more reach, more things? Because I, I noticed one thing that I think that I that I personally believe is getting people a lot more reach is these kind of like cartoony um, like uh, posts where they say it's a personal development post and they'll do like the the advertorial type cartoony thing that sh that shows it and someone speaking over the top. They're getting a lot more reach than just say if someone was sat there talking and there was titles going across it. So what what are some other things like that? 
Yeah, so from that standpoint, you know, I'm not really up on all those trends, but I do think the captions help quite a bit, you know, because a lot of people have sound off. That's like the first, like the easiest thing, you know, like adding captions to these videos. I think that's key. Um, you know, from that standpoint, I see a lot of these um, joint posts and the joint posts are doing really well for people because one one person might have a stronger audience and reach and, you know, that kind of boosts them and in in like really create some sort of interest for them to follow the other person, you know, so that helps quite a bit. I've seen a lot of that. Um, boosting posts is still good. You know, I feel like, you know, to find audiences that are not, um, currently following, I think that'd be good and target the audiences that you want, uh, for females that have, and this is interesting because, um, for, for women that have primarily met male and, and men as, as their, um, followers, I think, What's helped quite a bit for a lot of people I know is just kind of flipping the content style, becoming more, you know, I'd feel like more inspirational to women, um, having relationship posts and things like that, that, that really kind of like, you might shed some male users, but I think you'll gain female audience stuff to, you know, like the women can appreciate and, and respect. Um, let, I think like a little bit less risque, you know, uh, that helps quite a bit, I think for them to just drive incremental new audience and target the audiences that you want. Yeah, I love that. I think and I th actually just target posts on specific days. I think that's really cool too. So some people have like on Fridays, they'll have a relationship kind of post, you know, a joint post with their significant other, you know, like on, you know, like on a different day, like on a Monday, they'll have, you know, something about some sort of self-development stuff, you know, for women, you know, and then this is, this is like, uh, like a, a female thing. And then like on a Tuesday, they'll do some like workout stuff on, you know, on a Wednesday to do some cooking stuff or something like that to create some sort of a schedule of content where people kind of expect certain things and look forward to them. That's kind of cool. I've seen people do that. Um, it kind of helped people turn around their uh, their audience as well. Quick one for you guys. This podcast is sponsored by contentremover.com. As many of you are probably aware, I set up contentremoval.com in 2017 to help people remove all forms of online content and I've looked after some of the biggest names and brands in the world doing it and I would love to help you if you're struggling. If you're struggling to remove images, videos, search results, fake accounts or anything online, go to contentremover.com and we'll help you today. For someone like you though that's experienced a couple of big exits, that's made his money, that's, that's, that's set himself up on the right path by doing the Silicon Valley route, what do you think of the the personal brand these days because everyone's on about building the personal brand sure. building their own reputation their name it's become kind of a buzzword personal brand reputation whatever you want to call it what what's what's your thoughts on that because obviously you went the traditional route of i'm going to learn how to be really good at marketing and i'm going to join a startup like myspace and i'm going to own equity and equity and i'm going to exit so what, what what's your thoughts so I think there's a lot of hype around personal branding and, you know, the path is like kind of like, you know, like let's do a bunch of podcasts and let's have an ebook and or let's write a book and have a conversion funnel and sell some coaching and then we'll do a speaking tour. And, you know, that's kind of the, you know, the thing that everyone's doing. Right. So like, you know, from my standpoint, from a credibility perspective, I really need to understand the background of this person. Right. In general, I am not going to and there's a lot of sheep out there, but I'm not going to be a follower of someone without understanding their, you know, their background and, you know, like their credibility and like what they've actually achieved and done for me to be able to say, Hey, this is a person that I'm looking up to and potentially they're going to be a coach of mine or whatever. Right. So a lot of people out there that are 
trying to build personal brands and, and kind of going in that route. Um, there, I, I think that there is a lot of importance to understanding like, hey, your experience and what, what you've done in the past to be able to leverage that to, to kind of build the brand. Um, you know, I think what I've done is very traditional. I've worked for a bunch of companies, worked for a bunch of people, and then eventually I figured out, yeah, great, I could work for, for people, but I can also work for myself because I've had the discipline, you know, and being able to, um, you know, to achieve some stuff. So from that standpoint, you know, I think that it's a little more, it's a little different today than it was back then because a lot of people have, you know, these independent, you know, home-based businesses and things like that. So you, you kind of find a lot of, there's a lot of crowded space in that whole community, you know, the whole, the whole coaching and, yeah. and mentorship and, and, you know, personal branding. And I feel like the whole personal branding thing kind of comes with coaching and, and, and everyone's kind of doing this private coaching stuff, you know, there's a lot of podcasting, there's a lot of, you know, touring and public speaking, which is really cool. I think it's really great. But I also feel that that by itself might not be, you know, I mean, people can make the, the kind of money that they, they can be independent with, but I don't think, you know, building a business, having a strong exit, I feel would be a pr like a really strong, you know, like a much stronger um, path, I think, you know? Yeah, I, I, when I see people like yourself that have, that have got a strong personal brand or someone like Alex Hormozzi, sure. the reason you both have strong personal brands and the reason why people listen to you is because you've done epic shit. You've, you've, you've been involved in epic stuff. You've exited epic, epic stuff. You've got a story to tell and it's facts because like, you know, we started with this. It went to this in 18 months. We exited for this money. It's facts, right? So you, so you, you, you could, you deserve people to be interested in you because you've done cool shit. I think there's potentially a lot of people out there that are just starting a personal brand and that's what they're starting. They're not starting by doing cool shit. And I think that's where we get, where it all gets twisted, right? Sure. Yeah, I believe that. But I also feel that, you know, from when I meet people, it's either, Hey, what have you done? You know, what have you done? Right. But like what you've done in the past is also different from what you're doing today. Cause like what you're doing today, I think it's more important than what you've done in the past, you know? And I feel like, what are you up to today? And that, what's your mission right now, right? Like that could be really, really um, substantial. And I also feel that if you if you're not on that route of like building a company or you have built a company or you're planning to build one, what have you written, right? So like, I also look at it from that standpoint. It's like you're writing books, you know. What are you doing, you know, from that standpoint? And so you're an authority by either way of experience in building a company or by writing something you know, substantial that everyone loves. Right. So those are, you know, thought leadership can come from either, either side. And I think that, you know, that's what I kind of look for. And I think that people can do it. They could just start off building their own brand by writing books. Would you pursue thought leadership first or would you pursue the money first? Well, I'm an opportunist. So wherever I see the wins, right. So like from my standpoint, if I see an opportunity to build a company, and there's a, there's a win there. There's something I got to fast follow pretty quickly and I can replicate it and then I'll do it. You know, I'll do that. Um, I work pretty well in that environment because I have a lot of experience there. But, you know, as far as thought leadership, I'm working on two books right now with, with Carson, you know. So, you know, I'll be on that, in that path soon as well. But my mission is not really to, I don't want to sell coaching or any of that stuff. I just want to put out a couple of books that will help people and do some some speaking tours and some podcasting to really just inspire people rather than it becoming more of a, 
you know, like a commercial interest for me. But the but the interesting way that you've done it is you've gone, okay, I've done epic shit first and now I can talk about it because I've done epic shit. Sure. Which means that you've now put yourself in the window to come on podcasts because at the end of the day, you've got a good story to tell and you and you can what you can tell, you can back up with figures, you know, exit sure. exitable figures. I think I think that's where it gets kind of lost in translation. You talk about the fast follow method and, mm-hmm. and how you've applied applied well, you've basically formulated a framework while you're at MySpace with this sure. fast follow because you've seen that work. How are you like what are the steps that people can take from this podcast today and apply that for what they should look for in their business or what they should look for when they're investing in business? Yeah, sure. So I think the MySpace thing was a bit, you know, secondary. The primary one, the first one was um, going back in Silicon Valley in the midnight in the late nineties. There was a company called Nextag. I was one of the early guys there. Nextag was a comparison shopping engine, kind of like a price grabber. I don't know if you remember price grabber a while back. You just go on price grabber, you look for things, and there would be like a hundred merchants, you know, selling the thing, and you can, you know, it's a comparison shopping engine. So you can just pick the one with the lowest price or whatever, right? And so we basically sold those slots basically to different merchants, right? And so I was one of the early guys there in business development. I saw the company out there called Lending Tree. And Lending Tree was doing similar things, but with consumer loans. So they were basically saying that, hey, you apply for a mortgage, you know, essentially. And then, you know, they're saying lenders will compete for your business. So you get like four quotes, right? Essentially from different banks on your on your type of mortgage. Either it's a refinance or it's a new purchase, whatever it is. So I said, hey, you know, we're doing this already with soft goods, like software and also with hard goods, you know, with like electronics and things like that. Next tag. Why don't we do this with mortgage leads? You know, they're doing it's basically the same thing. It's virtual. We don't have a physical product. We're not selling anything on either, you know, either any of our businesses. So let's let's open this up. Right. We're selling leads. We're in the lead business. Right. So we're going to sell leads to software guys. We're going to lead sell electronic guys. We're going to sell leads to mortgage guys. Right. So we built. We built that business at Nextag, kind of created. So a fast followed lending tree, created that whole framework, built that business, boarded the banks, um, and then started um, running traffic to consumers to save money on their mortgages. That blew up overnight and it crushed it. I mean, it became so big that we ended up selling half of um, Nextag many years later for over a billion dollars, right? And it was primarily the mortgage business. You know, that was it. It went from, you know, a uh, comparison shopping engine to basically uh, selling mortgage leads, right? So then I took that and um, that concept that we created there, I took that and built it at, Len- at, at Lower My Bills, which was the next one. So we fast followed, fast followed, fast followed. And then that was the biggest business Lower My Bills had and Lower My Bills and we ended up selling it to Experian. So essentially, we can see things that are opportunities that are near us and figure out who's doing them well or find someone who has access to these people by adding value to their lives in a certain capacity and figuring it out, you know, essentially just reverse engineering stuff, right? So um, I feel like, you know, the fast follow method, you know, we did this in direct response marketing for a long time. So the company after MySpace, um, it was an ad network. And essentially, we had lots of direct response clients, affiliate marketers, etc. So affiliates are the best at fast following, right? So They'll see somebody running the same product they're running. They'll look at the conversion funnel and look at the ads, the conversion funnel, the site that they're on, and say, hey, these guys are doing well. I can already tell because I keep seeing their ads here, you know? So they must be doing well. So then they'll put ads, the same ads, the same conversion funnel, same products on the same site. 
and you know, they'll be able to test it there. So, okay, it's performing, but how do we improve it? Let's improve it. Let's improve the, the ads, the landing page, the entire funnel. Affiliate marketers have been doing this for a really long time. So, you know, that's a, that's a form of a really great form of fast following. So when we were running those types of campaigns, we didn't want to learn, you know, what's going to perform on our own. We didn't want to take something that we have no data on a campaign. We have no data on ads that we have no data on and a, a conversion funnel, like landing pages, et cetera. We had no data on that, any of that stuff. Right. So we don't want to run that. It's too expensive. Like we don't want to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to figure it out. So we would see what everyone was running, kind of copy it, you know, and, and, and we have some sort of baseline or benchmark. We know what it's going to perform. It's close to the, uh, you know, effective cost per acquisition that we need to hit to be able to, you know, to run that campaign. So from that standpoint, this is kind of like a macro and a micro, um, you know, version of fast following. But I feel like, you know, there's always going to be opportunity to fast follow something great, you know, and it's not, you know, at the end of the day, nobody cares who pioneered it, who created it. You know, it's just like you can't patent anything. You know, you're writing a formula essentially when you patent something, you're showing somebody a recipe of how to do it, you know, a little differently. And then, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't affect the patent. So you can't protect any of this stuff. So just figure out what is winning, who's around you that's doing really well, will they teach you? And, um, and, you know, you can build a business pretty fast. Or even who's doing it well and what can I learn, learn from sure. looking at them. But essentially what you've, what you've said there in layman's terms is become a really curious observer of what's working in, in markets that you're genuinely curious about. Because yeah. like curiosity is, has really led your career. Yeah. Like if, if, if we're going to break it down from what I can see, you've just been curiously led into different niches and thought, okay, what frameworks have I seen work in niches that I'm no longer in? What can I apply from those? And what am I seeing that's working in that space? And I'll put them together and I will, that's my fast follow protocol for that niche. And I'll send it off that way. Is yeah. that correct? Absolutely. And I, th I think that's, that's kind of, that's kind of, I think where people potentially then could be going wrong is they're not, they they're starting something that they believe and believe and belief is is a problem isn't it because sure. because they've already conned themselves into believing that their idea is good yeah and what you what what you're saying is i don't believe anything i'm just going to look at the data sure, and, and and i will just operate completely off data so you've took the emotion out of it 100 percent. yeah and i don't have any you know there's no ego or emotion right it's not about it's not a race to good ideas it's a race to revenue right that's the end of the day right so the bottom line is like I don't really care if the idea is good or not. If it works, it works. You know, that's, I've seen the weirdest shit make money, you know? And so, um, we have had, we've had clients during the ad network years. Um, they'll buy, <laughs> it's so funny. They'll buy these same flashlights that, uh, that are selling on Amazon for like five bucks, you know? And these guys are selling maybe like hundreds of thousands of them every month. And they were selling the same flashlights for like $30, right? The same ones. And it's like, how does that work? Well, they're running them on these conservative news sites where you have these r super hardcore right-wing people that are focused on survival, you know, like for some reason that there's going to be an apocalypse, right? They need a flashlight and like they need like dr dehydrated food and weird shit like that, right? But these guys are buying that stuff, you know? The way that they sell the copy on the landing page is like convincing you that, fuck, there's going to be an apocalypse or there's going to be something crazy going on. Zombies mm -hmm. are coming. 
So I need a flashlight, you know, and this is part of my survival kit rather than a flashlight for five bucks, the same thing on Amazon, you know, these guys are selling for 30 bucks and you know what? They sell hundreds of thousands of them every month. And this was going on for a long time. So we'd see that all the time. It's like, it's not about, it's not about being the pioneer, you know, because you never know if you really are anyways. It's about figuring out what works, being open to it. It's like, Hey, this is working today. This is working tomorrow. You know, like whatever it is. And it's cyclical, you know? So from that standpoint, it really is about figuring out and having those conversations with people like what's working, what, what are these people doing? How are they making money? Can I replicate it? Yes, you can hundred percent. If it's been done already, you can replicate it. So what were your goals when you first started getting into Silicon Valley? I mean, did you set out a framework of like, you know, my goal is to hit this number of, of net worth. I, I want a house in this location. Like a lot of people talk about vision boards and about manifest manifesting their reality. Is, is that really tangible or is that a thing for you or, or how have you done it? No, not, no, absolutely not. So my ment my early mentors were, you know, like I had, I'd read a lot of books um, at a really early age. I was reading Tony Robbins and and Zig Ziglar and Brian Tracy and, and you know all those guys back then. And I learned very early that no, it's not about that. It's never about that target. It's about the journey, right? And really, is essentially, what you really need to focus on is adding as much value as you can to every partnership, relationship, client, friendship, without expecting much in return. And eventually, once you've added so much value, you will be valuable, right? So the goal for us is always to be providing as much value as we can in, in whatever we do. And if we make money, we make money. It's not about oh, we want to be, you know, we want to be rich or we want a car or we want a house or it's never about that for me. It never has been, you know, all that stuff just came, you know, I'm focused and passionate on what I do and I will not do anything unless I'm passionate about it, you know, and so I feel that. For me, the challenge is like, I could take this thing from zero to 60 and how long, right? How fast can I get this thing growing, you know? And, and that's, that's what my mission is. It's about the work. It's not about the, you know, collateral benefits or collateral consequences or the houses and the cars and the wealth and all that other stuff. That's collateral. That's not the primary, you know, that stuff happens when you do a good job. You know, what would you say, though, to people on the journey of like their, 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 their journey might be right now. They're working a nine to five job. They're listening to you. They're inspired that they want to get out, get amongst it and start creating the kind of lifestyle that you've got and the kind of opportunities that you've created for yourself. You're saying go out and add value to the world, which which I understand because I've had to do that myself. But it's like how, how can people bridge the gap between like the nine to five or the small business and what you're talking about? Because there's a big gap there that needs to be bridged. And it, I, ju I think there needs to be a little bit more than just adding value. I mean, th there must be something else that, you, that they can do to speed that process up, right? Yeah, essentially, they got to surround themselves with people that are winning and then people that have done things or are currently doing things that are, you know, much bigger than what they're doing currently, right? So, you know, the environment's going to determine what you're going to do, right? Or the ideas you're going to have, what you're going to implement and execute on. Um, if you have shitty ideas around you from people that are, you know, you know, not necessarily the right people to be around, um, you're not going to get the, the good ideas. Now, all my ideas have always been from people that are bigger than me. I'm always surrounded by people that are much bigger than I am, you know, and I think that that learning that um, from Tony Robbins at a very early age right, really changed things for me because I've always been the smallest guy in the room, you know, and I always I always want to be, you know, and I think that's the best 
I get all the, the craziest ideas from these people. How did I take two companies public? And I took two companies public. And, and it's the craziest thing. It's like, where does that come from? You know, like I wasn't approached by bankers or anyone. I had to figure out how to do it. I was acquiring companies. There's an LA Times article about me like years ago that said we we're on a $100 million buying spree acquiring, you know, just acquiring media companies. We were doing that. We were doing it without any cash. How? <laughs> so how? How does that happen? It's just people around me, right? So I had some guys around me and a guy named Robbie Lee, really great friend of mine. He had the biggest dry cleaning roll up in history. And, the, and it was crazy. He was going on mom and pop dry cleaning operations around the country on a private company. We, we, he has company was private. He was acquiring all of them with zero cash, acquiring them. He had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these dry cleaning operations, mom and pop. And then he, he acquired them all, sold a dream to everyone, sold a fantastic dream, and it, and it worked and it materialized. That basically, they're going to have the biggest dry cleaning roll-up in history. And he did it with zero cash and basically took the whole thing, gave them all equity in this one private vehicle, took that private vehicle public, and then everyone got equity in it and it blew up and, and everyone did well, really well. So I learned from guys like this, because if I didn't have a guy like that around me, I wouldn't have been able to acquire those companies with no cash. Right. So I'm really good at selling a dream and I learned how to sell the dream from Robbie Lee, you know? And so having the right people around you is, um, is critical, but the most important thing about this is being able to attract the right people. So it's like you could be like this, this guy trying to like hang out with these really smart guys and they don't want to be around you, right? So one thing that I really learned at an early age also was that to be able to attract these people, you need to provide a lot of value to them. And for me, uh, what value I brought was other great people. So great people like great people and there's a shortness. There is, we're um, understaffed in great people in this world, especially in LA, right? So I've been attracting really great people and then they, I connect them with really good people and we're around, you know, nothing but fantastic people all the time. So think about Robbie Lee, that, that was really, um, that was really great. And, um, I ended up taking two companies public and it was, you know, it was rough because I was always in the media and getting shorted and just like slapped around. It was really, really tough. But I did end up raising, raising a lot of money. It was about 80 million bucks in the last one. And, um, you know, I learned a very specific art. There are very few people on this planet that can take a company public and have done it. And, um, you know, to be able to leverage that experience for the next one um, is great. So will I do it again? I kind of have to I have the experience, you know. Um, will I do it differently? 180 degrees, very differently. <laughs> but, you know, it's, um, it's, you know, you learn from people around you. You got to choose wisely. Your time is the only currency you have. If you're not around the people that you want to be like, then um, you need to rethink your who you're around. Well, there's a, f there's a few things in that. I mean, first, what you've done with Robbie Lee is you've you've essentially put you you can bring him good connections, and then as a byproduct of you bringing good connections, or always being around good people, you you've been able to learn of him how to how to do these, you know, uh, public. You take companies public essentially you've learned that learned that from him and he's inspired you to do it what were some of the things that you did wrong in taking these companies public that that, that caused so much stress for you you know i think that the whole the whole concept of taking a company public is you know all the all the hype around it is like it's really hard you know no one you know it's very hard to do it's almost impossible you know all that stuff right so you're kind of polluted with all of that in your mind. You're swimming around in all these ideas. The whole time you're doing it, you're anxious and you have a lot of anxiety and you're insecure. 
Like, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's There's no way it's going to happen. This is like a, a crazy, weird dream, you know? This is not going to happen, right? So the whole time, you're like, roadblocks, 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 right? So the thing about taking company public, the whole thing, the whole way is speed bumps, speed bumps, speed bumps. Like, it's thousands of speed bumps the whole way. There's no, like, smooth sailing. There's no, like, straight, like, Autobahn. You know, it doesn't work that way. So um, you're kind of dealing with all that stuff. So as a result of that, you want to meet other people that have done it, right? And you want to leverage their experience and learnings and stuff too, right? So basically, inexperience, you know, um, almost requires you to be depending on other people, excuse me, depending on other people. And you're just like, oh my God, these guys are so smart. Let's leverage them and let's use their learnings. So I chose the wrong people. So some of the people I was around have been, you know, like they were predatory, right? So they're going to help you. They're going to help you go public. They're going to help you do this. They're going to help you do that. They're going to sit on your cap table without an escrow. They're going to end up selling, you know, they end up selling immediately. Like as soon as you go public, they end up dumping their stock and your stock goes to hell, right? So that happened to us, you know, um, on two, on, on both of those, um, those listings. So we ended up with you know, the wrong guys, the wrong investors too. some of the wrong investors ended up, you know, saying, Oh, we're going to hold on to you guys for at least five years. As soon as the IPO happened, start selling, you know? So that's, you know, we go, you know, we went up like 50% the first day or something crazy, but yeah, I think so that was being able to find the right people, um, for something like that is critical. You know, it can affect your whole, your whole thing. So now I know exactly, you know, all the red flags. I know what to look for. I know like the baseline mandatory stuff. Like we escrow everyone who's not, you know, a founder. They get escrowed for 24 months. They cannot sell their shares. Um, you know, we don't end up with advisors that don't actually have any skin in the game, like advisors that aren't actually investing into the vehicle as well. And, um, you know, all that stuff, you know. So I, I have actually had to, help several companies um, that were going public and kind of like steer them away from that kind of thing. You know, I think Canada and Australia are two very predatory markets. Canada is really bad. Are these, are these both the markets that you've floated in? Yeah. Yeah. And so Canada is like very predatory. And um, I, I know a lot of guys that had fantastic companies that lost their companies because of the, the sharks over there, you know, they ended up doing some really wicked stuff to them. I've got a big audience in Australia. What, what Talk me through your experience of starting and floating a business in Australia. You know, we did a lot of road shows and we took, um, we spent a lot of time over there and, um, you know, people were receptive, but I felt some like really strange energy towards Americans, you know, in the, the whole time. You know, they, they blamed us for the whole MySpace demise thing, you know, when it was actually Rupert Murdoch. Um, so I'd go into like roadshow meetings to raise money and then they'd start really bring that up. They're like, oh, you're the guy that destroyed my space, you know, just really, really weird, like weird and strange things like that. And then we had a problem with the, um, the actual, uh, the exchange themselves too. So we had all of our, we're fully compliant. Everything was submitted, prospectus, everything, everything, all uh, Ernst and Young was our auditor. Everything was audited, ready to go. And then last, we had an IPO date last minute. They exercised discretion and required us to audit another period. So, and that wasn't even required in, you know, in the, um, in the rules. So we had to spend six months to audit another period. And unfortunately that costed us millions of dollars, you know, um, in expenses and also in time. So that was, that was a weird thing. And 
I felt like they were, you know, they were doing that, and our attorneys told us that they're doing that because we're American, you know. So American companies, you know, didn't we got a better valuation in Australia? That's why we didn't end up floating in the U.S. at the time. But it was, um, it was, such, it was a real interesting experience. Why was the value different for floating it in Australia compared to America at the time? Well, because over here there were see there were comps here at the time. There weren't comps over there, right? So there were no other companies like us that were floated over there. And over here, there were comps. And the problem was the comps, there were really just two comps in the space. And they were trading, they were at really, really poor valuations, like a tenth of their revenue, like really bad, you know? And so, you know, we felt like we had already gotten ready to file the S1 here. And, you know, we, we spent two years to get ready for it. And we're about to file the S1 and we saw the comps were just so bad that it was like, there's no way we can float here. It just wouldn't make sense. You know, we have so much dilution, you know, it'd be too bad. So we ended up, you know, we had uh, a CFO that did a company over there in the past or a couple in Australia and we ended up going with them. You know, we had, we took a couple meetings and we just went with them. So they raised the whole thing in one call. So it was, uh, it was uh, an opportunity at the time. And I suppose from now on, would you say doing business in America is your primary objective now rather than trying to do business in other parts of the world in terms of like where you set up and where you structure yourself so that you can sell and everything else? Sure. You know, I think we're open, um, open to other places as well. I mean, we always transact in other countries too, you know, from digital marketing standpoint. I think that, you know, to have a, a vehicle based in another country, it makes it a little bit more complex. But the next comp next company we take public will be here. It'll be on the Nasdaq. It won't be. In Can the we discuss country. some of the companies you're involved with currently? Or sure. So I have a stealth project right now that I started um, about a year ago, and it's a connected television company. So connected television is essentially a, a smart TV, you know, like Samsung, LG, etc. And they have an app store as well, and uh, people users download apps from there and stream content from those apps. And a lot of those apps are ad supported. So we'll have a commercial kind of like what you see in Hulu and YouTube um, within the uh, within the content. And those are the ads that we're selling. And we're primarily focused on that now. So that's the, 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 the so you're an ad company, would you say? Or yeah, primarily drive it. Is mm -hmm. there anything else you're involved with that's exciting you right now? So yeah, I have several other businesses um, as well. Uh, we have a a pretty strong credit repair agency for 18 years. Uh, it's focused on mostly like uh, high profile people, but we're opening it up now to, you know, a lot of partnerships and solar companies and mortgage companies, et cetera. So it's pretty big at this moment. Uh, we also have a, um, we have, uh, a, a, a short-term rental business. We have about 20 properties here in LA and that, that does pretty well. And, um, passion project of mine, we had a psilocybin business. So we had a, now, you, now you're talking my language, <laughs> mushroom company for about, um, we have the supplement brand for five years now. We added mushrooms to it for about a year and a half now. So I've I've had some phenomenal changes in my life because of uh, psilocybin trips that I've done in controlled environments. And mm -hmm. I've probably done about, uh, at this point in time, I've done three journeys, five gram, five and a half gram hero dose journeys. And it's absolutely revolutionized my life. Um, I mean, the first one can only be described as ego death and, sure. and learning getting outside of myself to be able to see myself mm -hmm. is the only way I can describe it to you. And um, I, I just want to understand what your experience is with mushrooms and how you found it and how you got into all that. Sure. So essentially uh, I had 
I had a really bad experience with mushrooms about 20 years ago. And um, I've really ne never done much drugs. I've only had MDMA, mushrooms, and I've smoked weed a couple times, but I can't really handle the cannabis. You know, it's not my thing. So, and MDMA, I haven't done it for over 20 years. So I had a, I had a mushroom um, experience about 20 years ago, and it was a really bad, you know, it was a bad trip. It was really depressing and stuff, so I, I said never do it again. Um, and then I had, uh, basically, I, I quit alcohol about four years ago. I never really had much alcohol in my life, but I just felt like I just wanted to be more leaner, you know, and more fit. So Hormozy, I'm sorry. Actually, you know what? It's, um, it's uh, what's his name? The Stanford guy. He's, he's uh, always, Huberman. Huberman's always talking about one drop of alcohol versus none is a huge contrast, right? So three, four years ago, I quit completely and zero alcohol. And I feel like it's made a huge change, you know, for me. And so around that time, one of my friends is like, hey, you need to replace it with microdosing. And this is a Silicon Valley guy. He's been uh, very successful, sold a company, uh, Facebook, many years ago uh, for nine figures. And then he had uh, another company that he built like over the last three, four years. It's worth about three, four billion dollars now. And he said all of his ideas have come from psilocybin, you know. And he does these like, you know, deep 10 gram journeys. 10 grams? 10 grams, yeah. It's mental. Yeah, with uh, with a shaman. So, you know, I said, you know, I, I, I don't like, I'm not into drugs. You know, it's not my thing. You know, I said, I won't, and I won't do it, you know. He said, okay, I know you. So I'm going to send you some stuff to read. So he sent me all the science. All right, so I started reading these studies about effects of mushroom on, you know, mushrooms on your brain, right? And the thing. Phenomenal thing was like, I said, I started looking at this stuff and I said, why am I not doing this? You know, like, it's so good for you. It's like, creates a new neural pathways, neural network genesis. Uh, so, so neurogenesis spawns. So it's actually, you're creating brain cells while you're on it. Whereas everything else you're on is killing brain cells, right? Alcohol, um, cannabis, you know, you name it, whatever else it is, right? So I felt like that was really interesting. And then um, PTSD, depression, so many other benefits, mood enhancement. So I did, um, I started microdosing. I started trying it out, tried everyone's products and it's very inconsistent. I felt like, you know, hey, one time I feel really great. Another time I feel weird and have anxiety or something strange, you know? And so then I started asking, I sort of got to the, the founders of these companies, you know, I started asking them questions and um, said, hey, why, why are these so inconsistent? Like, what is the issue, right? And it's like, oh, well, we get deals on, on, on mushrooms, and sometimes the strains are different. So I said, oh, you're, you're, you don't have a predictable outcome every time. You're using different strains every time. I said, yeah, so, okay, great, awesome. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna create a recipe. I'm gonna create something that is gonna be consistent every time. So I started researching the strains, right? And started understanding the differences and and how, how you feel differently on the strains. Now, you can take a strain, albino penis envy, whether it's in Brazil or it's here or, you know, like another part of the world, the characteristics of that strain with your, you know, the reaction and your behavior, you should expect the same, right? Very similar. It's highly euphoric, right? It doesn't have a, it, the finish is, is non-anxious. You don't have anxiety at the end of it. It's just very, very happy, right? So, there's other strains like Golden Teacher, you know, Be Positive. There's so many others, you know, like um, uh, MZ, Titanic, etc. So I started understanding all this stuff and um, started creating products around it, right? So we have a, a gummy that is um, pectin. It's vegan. And um, it has, depending on the, the version, we have two different versions. The one's like a penis envy. 
one's an albino penis envy. One's like 300 milligrams and it's 450 milligrams, right? So microdose and a little more recreational dose. And then we have chocolates as well. So um, it's a 0.3 and a 0 0.4. 0 0.3 and 0 0.4. And then chocolates, which have, you know, maitake, chaga, turkey tail, lion's mane, cordyceps, all the adaptogens, dark, vegan, 72%. And um, we're using penis envy in the chocolate. So it's a very highly euphoric feeling. And when you mix psilocybin with lion's mane, you end up with a really, really intense um, response. You know, you, it's very, very, it feels very different, you know? So we have the chocolate. And then we have capsules. Now we have two kinds of capsules. We have capsules for microdosing, truly microdosing, like a brain supplement, like 150 milligrams, which is very light. A different um, strain, it's called Makilla Gorilla. And then we have B positives and we have MZTTs and we have um, Golden Teachers and, you know, a variety of different strains that you can choose. And then we have um, the more recreational dosage, 250 milligrams. We also have a, a spray that's coming out right now very soon. It's like a Banaka. So you can spray it and within like 15 minutes or so. You, you feel the effects of it. It's really fast. And then we have a, um, a soda that we're working on right now, like a fit soda, basically. It has the adaptogens and also some psilocybin. So it's going to be really fun. What do you see is like the, the, the main thing though that mo where most brands are going wrong in that space? Is, because like from what I've noticed is like when I've actually microdosed actual mushrooms themselves, it's been way better than any of the, the products I've tried. And I, I presume you've experienced that before you started to set up your own products. Sure. So it's like, well, well, how, how can you make sure that, say if I took a 0.3 gummy or a 0.4 gummy, how can I make sure that the active ingredients I actually consume is 0.4 compared to if I actually took a microdose? Sure. So, and that was part of my journey of understanding all of that. And, and the questions I was asking these guys was like, hey, are you like, are, are you, what's your process of extraction, right? How are you isolating this, you know? And so essentially they were, most of these guys are using isolates, right? And, and I said, that is like, that just kills the, the, the real soul of the plant. So we use an actual uh, ground powder, mushroom powder. Right, so we yeah, use actual yeah. plant. Yeah. And so we, it, it is actually that weight, you know? So it's very consistent that way. The soul of the plant is still there and you feel all the euphoria too. In addition to, if you want to feel high, you can feel high too. But yeah, all the isolates I've tried, you just feel high. You don't feel the euphoria, you know, which is weird. So well, I think the the the, the lesson and the learning, and and few will understand what I'm about to say without taking mushrooms yourself. But the the lesson and learning from mushrooms comes from, you know, the actual plant being involved in itself. As soon as you extract an element of the plant, exactly. you lose the learning, in my opinion. So mm -hmm. it's it's very important. For me, like if I was going to take your product for argument's sake, that I know now it's ground mushrooms. Okay, mm -hmm. so it's so it's a whole it's a whole mushroom stalk that's been ground into Absolutely. this and wrapped in something that tastes nice, so it's palatable. Mm -hmm. Because you know mushrooms on their own are you know it's terrible, pretty, pretty <laughs> shit. Right, like like at, at, and that's being nice. So whereas I think a lot of brands are going where a lot of brands are going wrong then is because they're they're extracting and that's kind of taking away all the mm -hmm. all this all this. The soul about. we say it kills the soul, you know, of the plant, right? So. These all these like, plants have this, their their specific soul and their, you know, their guides to you know achieving yeah. certain things. And so when you do the extraction process, you're basically killing that off. So yeah, we've seen. I won't use an extraction method because the the ground 
plant material is just so much better, you know, and it, and we've, we've had a a very nice recipe where you don't taste it at all, you know, in our, in our gummies, in our chocolates, we have a a higher um, potent potency of the gummies. That's 450 milligrams. You do taste it slightly in there, Mm. but it's just, that's the pro version. The black, it's a black box, you know, and it's, I, I used to just yeah. crush it up and, and cut a protein bar into four pieces, cut it in half, yeah. put, put the 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.3, whatever I was having on sure. on that, slap it in between two bits and eat it between a whatever sure. name protein bar you mm. want to say. Like, and that was, that was the way that I consumed it to make it kind of enjoyable, but still get, still get the benefits from it. And, but what, what, what's, what have mushrooms taught you about yourself that you didn't previously know? Yeah. So it's a big, it's, it's quite profound. So, for me, I had this challenge. I had a memory issue um, for a long time. I couldn't remember a lot of stuff. I was never present. That was, you know, like that's the reason why. That was the main thing, right? So mushrooms really taught me how to become present. Like I had to learn how to be present again. And so I'm like probably the most present person you'll meet because I'm always, I'm just, I'm here, you know, I'm here. So the learnings I got from mushrooms are permanent. You know, it taught me how to be present while I was on it. And I carried that into my normal life. I'm super present. As a result of that, I, I remember every word everyone says. I remember everything. And it's it's really scary, actually, for a lot of people, too, because I'll remind them of very specific random things that they've said, and they're just like, wait, what? That's crazy. So, you know, that's a, that's a big part of it. When you're present is the only time you can actually express gratitude because you're not in the fear of the future or regret of the past. You're actually appreciating today and right now, right? So... That's a problem with a lot of society. It's just like really they're just kind of living between the fear of the future and the regret of the past and just kind of floating between the two, but not actually seated in the middle, which is right now. And you cannot really truly express gratitude or appreciate it until you're actually in the moment today, right now, right? So all this stuff that we're having, this moment, this conversation we're having right now is is really important, you know, and all of this stuff is for us to, to get to this point in our life, you know, we have to be really gracious for it. And so, um, it really helped me understand that the work that I need to do is all internal. It's not external, right? Everything can be done here. And so, you know, the, the, the help that we get from these tools, like, and I was doing ketamine therapies, you know, I did a couple of them. My, my buddy, he has a company called better you health and their, um, K therapy clinics, friend Derek is a great guy. Um, he did two administered ketamine therapies with me. They're about an hour and a half each and they're profound. And, you know, so that tool with the psilocybin tool, you know, they're separate. It helped me get to the meditative state, a very deep meditative state where I was able to process the work, you know, I was able to do the work inside. And then the mushrooms also help you kind of, you know, not only stabilize your mood and deal with depression and stress and all this other stuff, but it really helps you, you know, kind of get to that state, you know? And, um, I think that's really important. A lot of people can't achieve that in the practice of meditation anyway. So I think the faster you can get to knowing who you truly are, that is like your whole essence of being in life. You know, if you can get there as quick as possible, it's going to be advantageous throughout your life. I mean, uh, as I'm looking at you, I'm thinking, wow, you said you were like 40 something years 47, old, 47 yeah. years old. How are you keeping yourself so young and vibrant at 47 years old? Because people, people would never look at you and say you're 47. Sure. Yeah. So I think, um, essentially 
uh, MySpace, Tom and I have been biohacking for 20 years now. Okay. So, um, we don't look like our age because we've done a lot of things, you know, we've, we've, um, we spent a lot of time with, um, you know, just trying to improve every day and just figure stuff out. But there's a few fundamental things that I do that kind of keep me, um, anti-aging, right? So, um, my, my hormones have been managed by my doctor for about seven years now, right? So when guys turn 40 years old, they stop producing certain things and they overproduce other things, right? Testosterone, progesterone, estradiol, and a couple others just kind of go out of whack, just naturally. So all that stuff, I'm labbed every, you know, 90 days, and I have either peptides or, you know, other stuff that kind of keep me, keep me balanced and optimized. Hormones are really, really a big player in this, right? And so you lose your vigor, your drive, your energy, all that stuff if your hormones aren't right. You don't feel like doing anything, you know? There's a lot of guys I know that are over 40, 40 that kind of feel that way. And then physically, their bodies start changing too, right? It's a big problem. Um, fasting was a really important thing for me. Uh, I've been, you know, for about three, four years now, I've been fasting 23 hours a day. I do... 23 hours a day? I eat once a day. So, you know, um, there are exceptions, obviously. I'm probably going to eat soon. I have this, like, weird sinus thing all day. It's been... It's been... This pressure is so crazy. So your body will let you know if you need to... Yeah, yeah. Like, today, I'm going to eat soon. But um, essentially, it is... So it's everyone's body's different, right? So I just like bought these keto strips on Amazon and I wanted to see if I was in ketosis or there's any ketones in my urine. So I tested it like 16 hours, 18 hours, 20 hours, 22 hours, nothing, you know, like, and I, I do this for, you know, weeks and then I get to 23 hours and I start seeing, you know, like ketones in the keto strip. So for everyone, it's different for me, 23 hours works the best, you know, because I could actually be in ketosis, you know, at that, at that stage. But a lot of people, you know, 16 is good, good for them or 18. You just got to test yourself and see what makes sense. But the benefit I get from it is I could be fasted. All my workouts are fasted. I'll do three workouts a day. Three? Three. Like one, like really heavy weightlifting, another cardio workout, and another cardio workout later on. But yeah, so three workouts, fully fasted. And, um, you know, some other things like meditate twice a day. I practice transcendental meditation, which is TM. Uh, drink about a gallon of water a day, you know, like a, a variety of different things enable me to, you know, just kind of stay, you know, but how, do you how do you achieve so much in business with when you're got to work, you got to go to the gym three times a day, you got to, yeah, the gym at your home. <laughs> That's an right, right. important so, thing. So did, did you, do you think then that this kind of level of optimization started after you'd made money? Like so, so because I don't want people, that sure, people, right. people that listen to this will be like, "Yeah, that's great for you, mate." But I work nine to five. I do this. I do that. Yeah, so there's still, you, you know, you still. If you work nine to five, that's eight hours. You got how many hours left? You got yeah, sixteen hours left yeah, in the yeah. day. You're gonna sleep for sixteen hours? No, you're gonna sleep for eight hours. You got eight hours left. Yeah. What are you gonna do for the eight hours? Yeah. Three workouts. It's potentially three hours, right? You don't need yeah, to do yeah. three. You could do two, potentially, right? That's two hours. You still got six hours left. What else can you do? Why have you optimized for three workouts a day? Is that every day? Yeah. So it's in the middle. So that's five days a week. So the beginning would be the first and then the morning it'd be cardio, 30 minutes, of like super intense cardio, and then some bar work like um, dips, pull-ups, stuff like that, push-ups, just basic stuff. And then um, that's that. That'll be knocked out in like 45 minutes to an hour. And then the second workout, which is about one and a half to two hours, which is like extreme weightlifting with a trainer, like super, super heavy stuff. And then um, the third workout is later on in the day before I eat, which is the same thing that I did in the morning. 
So it's not too crazy. And how long have you been doing that for? About three, four years. Three of them for three, four years. But then I've been working out for like 10, 12 years with a trainer. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I used to live in England, I was out on the road in the morning running a f two or three miles. And then, and then I'd go to sp sparring or weights in the evening because obviously that was, was for boxing and stuff. And, and that was, I was working hard t twice a day. And mm -hmm. I thought, I felt great. Don't get me wrong. I felt great. And I felt euphoric. I'm sure you feel the same, mm -hmm. but I, I realized I had to give up a lot to do those two because I was also working a job as a, as, as a carpenter at the time. Mm -hmm. I wasn't doing any online business. Sure. So it's like, I can understand how someone listening to this might go, well, that seems ridiculous. But like you say, you can start at two, start at one workout a day. Some people aren't even working once a day. Yeah. So essentially it's like, you could do one. It's fine. No one's asking you to do three. Just do one, you know, just do one. And the other two, if you have time, I mean, yeah, it's kind of like how many hours a day are you working? If you're working eight hours a day, you still got 16 hours left. You could sleep for eight and you still got eight hours left. What are you doing with your time? You know, and I feel like a lot of people, they need to prioritize themselves. Now, for me, I had this kind of thing, you know, happen to me. Like I was really, really focused on work for a long time. And I felt like that was my most, that was the most important thing. Whatever happened at work will determine my mood. You know, it was really bad. So um, several years ago, I realized what was the most important thing to me, which was like, you know, like my friendships, cultivating new relationships and, you know, my existing friends, my family, my animals, um, my health and wellness. Actually, that's probably number one. Right. And, and the reason and, and I had to like live like that and, and actually live in that moment because it was it was uh, more it's easier said than done. But the business and all that stuff, business comes, business goes, money comes, money goes, you know? So why do we make that what, you know, where identity is based on? We can't make our identity, you know, um, you know, our identity is not our business or our job or what we do. It is not what identifies us. What I, what really identifies me is, you know, all the stuff that I just mentioned, you know? And, and I think that, um, and, you know, like really focusing on my health, like really, really getting all that back uh, made a really, really big difference. And it made me, made me feel like I'm actually, a, I'm here permanently rather than I'm just here during this mission of whatever this project or this business is at this time, you know. Have you made more money whilst you've been doing that protocol? You know, it's interesting you ask that because it naturally happens. Because once you start prioritizing yourself, you're, you're thinking clearer, you're in a better mood, you're making better decisions because you're in a better, you know, headspace. So, you know, and you realize that like, you know, is, is anything that all these decisions that I'm going to, that I'm making that I'm going to make, are they contributing to the core, the, the three or four core things that are important to you? Are they going to improve that in any way? You know, or is your health and wellness going to get better? Is it going to, you know, is it going to be worse? You know, like all of that stuff, because it really has to be the most important thing to me. Like for me, my health and wellness and my mental, you know, state is the most important thing to me you know, today. Well, one of the, one of the videos I watched before, well, the first videos I ever watched of you was you talking about relationships and how relationships are so important for, for who you want to be as a man and when you're in the pursuit and everything like that. I think you said along the lines of, uh, I'm paraphrasing, I'm sure you can give some more context to this, but you said, like, when if you're with a woman and, you know, she's not 
doesn't understand what you're doing and doesn't understand you you kind of yeah or you're having to you're having to bring her up to your level is you kind of you kill yourself off from your growth is that kind of para- I'm, I'm paraphrasing sure so w- what i was saying and i say this to a lot of people all the time is like hey you know like let's forget about gender right it's not about gender or or love you know or um a role in relationship, but we have relationships and they're fr- we have friends, right? And yeah. people around us, right? And so at the end of the day, it's, you know, you really want to be careful who is around you, right? You got to be around people that have really great ideas. Fundamentally, every person around, you got to look at them and say, these are the five, and you can write this down. Actually, it's so much easier when you do it. This person, Jim Bob, Here's the five things that I love about Jim Bob that I want to be like. I want to adopt those five characteristics about Jim Bob, right? He's got, you know, he's got all this stuff. I want to learn all this stuff from him and I want to be just like him in that way, right? So why would we make an exception for our significant other? So we look at the significant other and we say, these are the five things or 10 things or whatever it is I want to be like, for example, for like my girlfriend, I want to be like her in these five or seven things. I want her, I want to learn these things from her. I want to adopt these characteristics from her. She's super smart and she's going to drive me. She's going to drive my growth, right? That's how we should feel because that person is around you more than anyone else. And if that person isn't contributing to you, to your growth, why are you making that exception? There's no reason for you to make that exception because what have you achieved in your life? You achieved a lot. You've achieved so much. How does this person deserve to be around you? There is a deserve, I say deserve, because are they at an equal or greater level than you at certain things? And, and the certain things are the things that you want to be good at. If they're not, then you don't need to make that exception because you're at this level. You need to find somebody at this level or greater. That's just how it's got to be. So, how, so what were the things, the non-negotiables in, in you finding partners? Well, that was really important to me. So like I, I, could, I take the whole bias out of it. It's like, this girl is so hot. This girl is so great. She looks beautiful. She's incredible. But she has to, she has to be someone that I want to be like in a certain capacity. She has to be driven. She has to be motivated. She has to be crushing and winning every day. She's got to be, you know, like what is she doing what are the characteristics? What are these habits? What are these things about her that I want to be like? I, I really want to be like this and I want to grow into that. Um, and if that, if it doesn't exist, it's just like, you know, it's just like a fling then, you know, at that moment, you know, it's not somebody yeah. that I need to be around for a long time. There's a lot of narrative at the moment that you should, so from, from an entrepreneurial man shouldn't go out of an entrepreneurial woman because it turns into a bit of a dick swinging competition between the two of you. And people have said that, you know, in those kind of relationships, you know, the, because the woman's entrepreneurial, she can become more masculine energy and then it's a bit of a competition. And you should, as a man, people have said, people say the narrative is that you should have a more passive woman that, that wants to wants to support your growth. But what you've just said is very opposite to that, really. It's, it's saying, no, you want someone in your corner who's entrepreneurial, who's driven, who's doing big shit because you want to bounce your energy off her. So you're going counterintuitive to the narrative that's being taught in the mainstream, is it? Yeah, so I'm saying that, you know, that the whole thing about um, compensation, you know, you want somebody that compensate for your, you know, the stuff that you, you don't have and whatever. It's all there. And I think that there's val- validity to that, too. I'm not saying specifically entrepreneurial. 
I'm what I'm saying is like this, the values or the the characteristics about this person that you want to be like. So, for example, say my girlfriend is, you know, super healthy and, you know, she eats very extremely clean and, you know, and she's, you know, she's in, you know, like fantastic shape. And, you know, she fe I feel like, you know, like I need to improve in that area. I need to get better. And she's just so good at it. Right. She reads every label. This is true. She reads every label. You know, there's a new gimmick every day. Like, this is going to improve my health. This is going to be better. This is going to be whatever, right? And I can, I just can't, that, I, that's fantastic that she's like that because I'm not like that, you know? I want to be like that. And a lot of people think I am like that, but she's just another like extreme level above me. That's an example of like, I want to be like her in that capacity, right? And I want to learn, and that's going to improve the core values, right? Like the core stuff that I find important, my, my wellness, my health, my mental, right? And so she's hiring, she's hiring um, shaman from London to come down for seven days to do ceremonies. And it's all, it's all about mental health, right? And so well, that's fantastic. It's great. This is inspiring me. It's helping me grow, you know, and she's that she has an interest that's right, yeah. parallel to mine. And it's not entrepreneurial, but she's, you know, it's fantastic. Work ethic, right? Whether you're entrepreneurial or not, work ethic. Wow, her work ethic is incredible. Mm. You know, she, attention to details, fantastic. Mine isn't as great, you know, like whatever, you know. So there's a lot of different things. That, you know, people are better than you at a lot of th different things potentially. And if they are better at things that you want to be good at, that's that's great, you know. And so I feel I feel that those are the kind of ideas that I'm surrounded by with my girlfriend, you know, like, it's always like, let's get better with health, wellness, spirituality. Those are really important to me. That's the stuff, internal stuff, not external, right? I don't need external. I don't need anything external. You don't want a woman that's interested in uh, where her primary focus is, all the fillers and all the bullshit and all the right. trying to take selfies. She, she actually removed her breast implants. Yeah. You know, I've seen a lot of women do that because of the health benefits sure. of removing them. She removed them because uh, apparently there's 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 stuff within them that leaks into your system that that changes your mood and how you perceive yourself as a woman. In addition to that, it's a different person. It's like, hey, this is not my identity. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't even, I, I didn't even register that before because as yeah. soon as as soon as you change, I say this to people with a lot of tattoos. I don't say it to them with a lot of tattoos, but I say it about people with a lot of tattoos when you have a lot of tattoos on your external body, it just shows you internal trauma that you've not dealt with, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's just a classic example of, of where people are getting it wrong. Um, a lot of my friends have reached out to me in the past, Ted, and, and talking about hair transplants for themselves or they want to get these hair tattoos. And I say, how about you fix your own internal identity that you have with you, you know, losing your hair? And I guarantee you, once you accept yourself from that point and accept who you actually are, you will not want to get these things done because it's only because of that internal conversation that, that any of these things happen, right? Mm -hmm. So what would your advice be as a man that's had a lot of internal conversations and faced a lot of his internal demons so that he didn't put it out in his exterior world? What would your advice be to other men and probably some women facing that exact narrative? You know, I feel that, again, it comes back to the work inside, you know, like the answers are all within, you know, it's nothing that ex that's external. So I feel that, you know, my advice to a lot of people that are struggling with, with stuff, you know, just confused is, you know, like a, a few things are like, 
learn how to meditate, you know, it's just like basic, just when I say learn how to meditate, I mean like have someone who's qualified, who has a track record and a resume, have them teach you how to meditate, you know, go to a TM center. They have qualified people there. They'll teach you how to meditate. You actually finally be able to meditate in, in contrast to what these apps call meditation. Cause it's, it's very different. You know, um, meditation is really important. Um, look into some psychedelic therapies and stuff like that. I think it's really critical. Um, and it's profound and, you know, like the ketamine therapy that I, that I did, I never felt impaired or high any of that at any point, you know, I was, I was gone for an hour and a half each time came back, remembered everything, had a to-do list at the end of it. Fantastic stuff. All the stuff that's in my subconscious, I'm starting to see the blocks and stuff and, you know, be able to deal with them. And it makes a huge difference. And, um, and by the way, that's the kind of exploration I want to do is like all this internal explore exploration, as opposed to like, you know, this external shit, like let's buy a bigger house or let's buy a bigger car. Let's, you know, like all this stuff, like, you know, I need to have celebrity friends or I need to wear jewelry. That's like, by the way, I wear beads. <laughs> yeah. You know? I, 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 one, one thing I noticed about you when you walked in today um, and we met in person is like, you know, you're not, you're not signaling with a watch. You know, yeah, you got a nice pair of trainers on, and and but you, but you're similar to me. Like, I would just wear a black T-shirt and a black pair of Zara jeans and a pair of not white Nikes. I mean, there's sure. no, there's no, there's no trying to. Imp- we're not trying to impress the world. We're just trying to express ourselves. Right. right. And so, I have a pretty big thesis around this. And so, like, it was it was different for me several years ago. I had, um, you know, like I, I'm a fashion guy. I love fashion, you know, and so I've always like everything I wear is from Japan, you know, like everything, my shoes, my shit, everything's from Japan. You really? Know? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of it's crazy. Like these are Miharas and, you know, like it's, it's crazy. This is Eitan, you know, and so all my, I love Japan. Japan's fashion is, you know, it's like next to none. They're always way, way ahead, you know. So I've, I've been a fashion, I've been into fashion forever, you know, since I was a kid, you know, like 10, 12 years old. So, but, you know, I think that for me, or, you know, the accessories and jewelries was always kind of part of the fashion. So I had a lot of like really, you know, like insanely expensive like jewelry, like diamonds and all kinds of stuff, you know, like I'd always wear and it's part of my outfit, you know, like whatever. It was not really about for me, it wasn't about like, oh, it's, you know, um, expensive and, you know, like it's it's unique because it's out of reach for other people or whatever. It wasn't about that. It was but it was kind of like, oh, it's style, you know. So but I didn't realize what it was doing. It was intimidating people. It was causing me to be unapproachable. And it did not mesh with my personality, right? And so I'm all about internal work and spirituality and, you know, like, find yourself within. And But this didn't fit, right? So I made a pretty big switch. So I went to Bali. And, um, you know, I found this brand here. It's called Shiva Loka. And they're, you know, it's basically a Hindu brand. And these beads are, um, they're called Rudraksa. And it's a dried berry. And it's interesting because that, different berries have different vertical stripes on them and they mean different things. And so they have like significance to that. And then they represent certain Hindu deities and things like that. So I'm from India, right? My background is Indian. I was born in India. I grew up Hindu. My parents are practicing and, um, I, you know, I, I never really practiced until, you know, like until, sorry, after maybe I was like seven, eight years old. And, um, so I've always had this like embedded, um, spirituality built into me, you know, and so, like, I found this brand in Bali, and I started wearing it. And then, you know, I reached out to the brand and I said, "Hey, I love your stuff. I'm gonna get more stuff." So I ordered a bunch of their stuff, and um, it's really interesting for me because, like, I mean, this stuff means a lot. I mean, this is actually made from my birth chart. It's got like, you know, 
um, lotus seeds and tiger's eyes and all kinds of really cool stuff, you know. And for me, this stuff means so much to me, you know. It has significant meaning. And these are meditation beads. They absorb energy and they're blessed by Hindu monks, you know. It's really cool, you know. Whereas, like, the diamonds and all this other shit, like, I'm, you know, I was wearing watches and stuff and it's just kind of like, it, it was attracting the wrong attention. It was attracting the wrong people, you know. Who was interested in it? Women that were, you know, that I did not, did not want to attract. Guys that were, you know, like sizing up each other and, you know, competing with each, with each other. I don't want those kind of people around me, egotistical, arrogant people. I don't want that. So, you know, it just became this thing, like, for me, like, I just, it's not, it wasn't consistent with my mm, core values. Mm. So, you know, I, I was done with it. And so, like, I just like, you know, like, interesting stuff. Like, this is uh, a deity, Shiva. This is, um, a, you know, a god that was in my, um, this is a bracelet I'm wearing, god that was adopted by my family, you know. Um, for several generations. So this stuff is really cool. You know, like I feel like in, and you know, the idea of it is, you know, it's, it's pretty um, straightforward and so, people so. ask me about it and they're really interested, you know, like, what are you wearing? You know, it's kind of cool. So, so you, you created a standout appearance because you're, you're dressed differently to most people. What you're wearing aligns with your energy because of what you're trying to portray. Yeah. And what you've cut out is any unnecessary attention from wearing anything that doesn't represent who you are anyway. That's and, true. And, and it's like you, you've essentially gone, well, okay, uh, uh, yeah, I like an AP, I like a Rolex, I can buy all that stuff, which is what you've done in the past potentially. But then you're like, well, but the people I'm talking to by having the AP are boring as batshit. So I don't want the AP anyway because sure. I've made my money. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. It's like I have a lot of friends that have all that stuff. And they're just like, okay, so I'm a car guy. I have crazy cars, you know? You've got There's Bugatti like, Veyron. Yeah, i got Bugatti Veyron. i got all kinds of other really interesting things. And, like, they're really interesting cars. Like, there's 45 of them in the country. And there was only a couple hundred made worldwide. And I've had other really cool stuff. Like, oh, wait, this guy from Japan flies in to build Porsches, RWB. And I was the largest builder of those in the U.S., and, um, you know, and, and that is really interesting stuff. And that's just being a, like a geeky car guy, you know, like I like interesting cars, you know. And and so I have friends that are watch guys. They're just like that. They're just like really unique, interesting watches. They're like nerds, you know, like watch nerds, you know. So that's different. I understand those guys. And there's no like there's no hate or anything like that related to that. But then there's those guys that are just buying these watches just to be, you know, you know, just look, you know, like they have money or popular or whatever. And, you know, from 10,000 feet, I would look like that, you know, and I just don't want to feel the bottom line is I don't want to intimidate anyone. I don't want to be unapproachable, you know, like, oh, this guy's got this watch. He's like, you know, like, I, I can't really talk to him. You know, I don't want to be I just want to be a basic floor level dude, you know, that anyone can approach and talk to because I want to be able to talk to anyone myself. Because that's where you've learned all the best lessons in your life to be able to apply to business to make X amount of millions anyway so so yeah. so i know i know that's not the reason you're doing it but the, all the lessons and all the insights come from the floor level for you yeah so so why would you want to disconnect yourself from where you learn all your most valuable lessons right absolutely being coachable is probably the most important thing in, in to be coachable you got to be humble right it's a big part of it so that's some of the best some best qualities in people that you'll find some of the most successful and smartest people are the most coachable people as yeah well. yeah and and when you look at people especially involved in tech you look at a Bill Gates, you look at a Zuckerberg, you look at a Elon Musk. They just they just dress normal, like you know you wouldn't if you if you, 
not that they would queue up for McDonald's or queue up for any fast food restaurants, but if they were all stood in a line with normal people, they would just look normal, wouldn't they? Just a little bit more techie than yeah. perhaps the average person. But essentially, what I'm saying is they're not wearing these outlandish brands. You don't see you don't see Elon Musk wearing off white. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like he doesn't give it. He doesn't care. He wants to just sure. build the best cars and the best rockets that he can build because that's all he's interested in. He's not interested in what jeans he's got on. He lives in a tiny house by his factory because he just loves. He just loves that and doesn't need a big house. So it's mm -hmm. like you gotta you gotta see how these people are moving, and you're moving in a similar way. And there's there's a there's a thread there, isn't it? You just just be happy with the smallest amount of stuff. Yeah, you know, it's like I I like architecture, and I design all my houses, and you know, all that stuff. It's really interesting. You know, that stuff's kind of like a hobby for me. I'm not artistic, but I have some creative outlets. So that stuff's really cool. But I feel like you know the the most fulfillment you're gonna get is the search within. You know, yeah. and so whatever can get you in that meditative state using the different tools, you know, whether it's, um, you know, medically, you know, induced and, you know, or enhanced, or you could just do it yourself. That's where you have the best, you know, I was the most, you know, I would, I would say the best rest for your brain and also the best, you know, um, discoveries, you know, and yeah. I think it's all the most fulfillment is going to come within that. And also for me, the inspiration, it, it, being able to inspire people to, to do better, um, helping people get to the next next level, you know, achieve whatever they want to achieve, and um, you know, I think all of that is mo much more fulfillment than, you know, like the selfish stuff. Like, oh, I, you know, I could do really well. I deserve this next thing, whatever it is. You know, that never gets me fulfillment. You know, it's just mm -hmm. like whatever. You know, it's like stress actually. You know, so yeah, and you you can you can rather than creating stress in your life, you can choose to create a different narrative by. Mm -hmm actually going back to truly who you are rather than trying to be something that you're not essentially is what you're saying and and yeah. you've you you found it out from an early age lent into your passions built money and wealth out of it but not gone not gone obnoxiously down it so far that you've kind of sent yourself off down this dick swinging path you know mm -hmm. where, where most people do ted mate it's been a fantastic conversation i really appreciate your time on the podcast but one thing i like to ask people before they leave this podcast is if there was one piece of golden wisdom, one pearl that you could leave for every member of this audience that just moves them forward in 1% from today, and it's the only thing you can leave if you've got to check out the planet, what would it be to you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I like this a lot because everyone can do it. It's a simple exercise, and I think that you just grab, a, uh, you know, a notepad and a pen and, um, and really just write down the people that are around you, you know, just take a look at everyone that's around you and just kind of catalog them systematically. Like, who are these people? Like, who's, who are you spending your time with? Right. And then start, you know, start listing for each one of them. You can create a spreadsheet if you want, but yeah, start listing the qualities that you admire about them, you know, um, and the stuff that you want to be like. Right. And so this will kind of give you an idea of how to plan your interaction with these people also. And also, It'll, you know, hopefully it'll give you an idea of who you need to get rid of from around you. Um, and that way you can, you know, kind of gauge, um, your, you know, leverage your time a little bit better and, you know, just be around people that that'll help you get to the next stage of your life, whatever, whatever that path is. Right. We're not talking about accomplishment necessarily. We're talking about, you know, um, fulfillment, you know, so where are you going to be next, you know, and, and whoever you're around is going to determine that. Who are your, um. Robbie Lee's. Yeah, I love that. I love yeah. that. And and like you say, and the one key thing that sticks out from through this podcast for me is the fact of like, you know, who have you got to be to add value to other people to be able to clip the ticket yourself down the track? 
Yeah. But it's never about, you'll just know you'll get that clip anyway. You don't have to preemptively try and take the clip or try and engineer it. You just go out and serve the world and the world will serve you, essentially yeah. what you said. And you can't achieve, um, you know, the success of being able to attract great people until you've cut everyone that isn't great around you. You got to cut all the non-contributors, all the stragglers, all the ones that are, you know, the, the takers. You got to cut them all out of your life. Every one of them. You can't have any undertones of that energy around you because you will not attract good people. They Love have that. to be gone. Love that. Yeah. Because I think you block yourself energetically is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. And guys, do me a solid favor. Subscribe on all the platforms. Put this in other people's ears in your network. That would help grow this show massively. I appreciate every single one of you listening. That's Ted. He's smashed it on all levels. I'll drop his details in here so you can go follow him on Instagram and see all the good stuff he's doing. Much love. Appreciate every single one of you. Peace out. Thank you. Guys, do me a solid favor. Drop a comment below this video and let us know who you want on the podcast next.